from matinees on Main Street. This is the Movie History Podcast, which tells its story from the beginning. We're now crossing our first chronological Rubicon, the line that separates the 1800s from the 1900s. At that time, little was happening cinematically except for the current events that the early movie cameras filmed, and we'll talk about those in a later podcast. So let's stop and take a look at the world, as well as the past and future in cinema from the point of view of 1900. In some ways, there's a similarity between that period and the early part of this century. In both periods, we were shifting from one generational culture to another. And in both cases, those changes didn't happen overnight. Instead, those changes came one by one. In some instances, those changes were political, and in others, they were cultural. As usual, science and invention had a lot to do with those changes, but so did an impulse to reject what the previous generation accepted, and that seems to happen more often than we realize. It's important to keep the idea of change in our minds as this story goes forward. In America, 1900 was a presidential election year, although those campaigns were much less culturally dominating than they are now. William McKinley was president and running for his second term. At the very end of the 1800s, Vice President Hobart died, and since then a movement was organized to replace him on the ticket with the Spanish-American war hero, New York Governor Teddy Roosevelt. That movement would succeed. The man who ran against McKinley, and who eventually would lose the election, was the same man who ran and lost in 1896, former Nebraska Senator William Jennings Bryan. If you remember, one feature of McKinley's 1896 campaign was a video that Biograph Films had made, which proved quite popular at the time. This time, Brian would create his own cinematic advertisement, as a cameraman recorded him in his farm clothes of jeans and a hickory shirt while he strolled within his 15-acre farm. This let everyone know that Brian was a farmer and not just a senator, and the film would appear in theaters over the rest of the year. Unfortunately for him, McKinley was a well-liked man and won re-election. Sadly, McKinley was assassinated about six months into his second term. The following seven years would be the Teddy Roosevelt years. As with the 2000s, the 1900s started with a terrible tragedy when a hurricane slammed into Galveston, Texas in early September of 1900, destroying the town, wiping out a third of it, and leaving anywhere from 8,000 to 12,000 people dead. It was also at this time that England started fighting its controversial war in South Africa, known as the Boer War. This was also the year of another Paris Exposition Universelle. While this latest World's Fair was still centered around the Eiffel Tower, as was the one in 1889, 
This fair was significantly bigger, with pavilions, shops, and exhibitions lining the Seine over the Champs-Élysées and the Hôtel des Invalides. The whole thing was considered a massive city of light, and it was dedicated to the scientific marvels of the previous century, especially electricity. The Lumières filmed some of the sites, and Paris's most famous American émigrés could be seen there, including La Louis Fuller. Her performances would be seen by other future American dancers visiting the exposition, including Isadora Duncan, then struggling as a modernist dancer, and Ruth Dennis, who would head the Ruth Saint-Denis dancers and even play a part in films during the silent era. The fair would not have as big an influence on the movies as did the other world's fairs of the period but it did pay tribute to the Lumières, who were attempting to expand their presence in the field of movie machines by creating bigger and better systems. One of those systems was on display at the fair. The Lumières were interested in the mechanical ideas behind photography and cinema and were pulling away from the idea of making movies, leaving it to others, such as Georges Méliès and the company of Gamont Essy whose main filmmaker was Alice Guy. Credit is given to both of them for expanding the idea of narrative in film. While the Lumières were shifting their direction away from movies, their cinematograph had left a big mark in America. A number of neophyte inventors had chosen to base their camera designs upon the Lumière machines rather than challenge Edison's patents. The cinematograph may have had a bit of an edge over the Edison machines simply due to its pioneering status. In 1900, the moving pictures seemed to have settled into a reliable place within the American public's entertainment, and the dwindling sense of boredom that usually accompanied novelties seemed to have faded due to the growing interest in newsreel footage. America's war with Spain had ended a year and a half earlier, and yet there was continued interest in Edison's war graph, which was the name he gave his projector, and the war films it exhibited. In the big cities, the movies seemed to be restricted to the same locations as always, so it was their infiltration into the smaller cities and even the towns and villages of America where the latest expansion of cinema seemed to be taking place. Also, a few people were buying new or used machines to show pictures locally or regionally. This seems to be where the movies were expanding at this time in America, Canada, Great Britain, and France. As for films, the championship boxing match between Tom Sharkey and James Jeffries had become quite popular. America was still divided over the issues of boxing, as well as the evils of gambling that followed boxing wherever it went. Despite that, the public was willing to look the other way when it concerned boxing films. To quote the Evening Telegraph newspaper of Dixon, Illinois, We don't know about attending a prize fight. Still, there could be no harm in looking at a picture of a prize fight. The passion plays continued to play in the small towns around the country. The charge up San Juan Hill was also another favorite but it was the British mutoscope films about the Boer War that was starting to draw interest. 
A mechanism called the biograph has been taking moving pictures of some of the fiercest fights, and perhaps the world will thereby get a better idea of what war really is than it has been able to obtain from the reproductions of the great battles of the past. In Nebraska, the Omaha Exposition Midway Company was showing pictures from the war graph. In Montreal, a biograph was showing various Boer War movies, including a shot of General Buller and his staff as they marched into Cape Town. Moving pictures of the Paris Exposition was shown at the Town Hall in Brandon, Vermont, despite a snowstorm outside. In March, a large crowd attended Tony Spencer's moving picture show in Erlington, Kentucky. Professor Fred Chamberlain toured as an orator and elocutionist and presented a lecture on Ben-Hur while using Edison machines. The people who attended the Castro Theater in Falls Rivers, Massachusetts in March 1900 were entertained by both the Boer War and clips from the Spanish-American War presented by the Biograph. But not all shows ran well. A rather cheap moving picture and talking machine filled Du Bois and Gays Hall in Randolph, Vermont. In liberal Kansas, the newspaper reported, The moving picture concern showed at the courthouse last Thursday. The only thing about the affair that was in good shape was the sheet which the pictures were supposed to appear. The sheet was good, the pictures were poor, and the lecture contained no thrilling parts. The best part of the entertainment was when the man with the machine meekly said, Good night. Howe's high-grade moving pictures was touring the East. The Kickapoo Medicine Company was touring with a moving picture machine in Illinois. San Francisco's Shoots Amusement Park already had a machine and would be showing shorts into the Nickelodeon age. Bullard and Breck were selling magic lanterns and second-hand moving picture machines. In Anniston, Alabama, moving pictures were being shown from Lubin Cineograph before local baseball games. In Lincoln, Nebraska, Professor Robertson was showing moving pictures and illustrated songs at the local Chautauqua. W. L. Powell was entertaining the Ladies' Nickel Society at the Presbyterian Church in Waterloo, Indiana. Harger and Bush were selling graphophones and moving picture machines in Dubuque, Iowa. A few hospitals started to use moving picture machines in order to record the problems of people with locomotor issues. Gray's Stereoopticon travel lectures were showing films of England and Ireland. Edison's Klondike films were starting to appear. Al Klump, a barber from Kansas City, Kansas, was touring as a traveling exhibitor, and in Birmingham, Alabama, someone was offering a great chance to make money. Projecting kinetoscope or moving picture machine. Also, large stereopticon with a great variety of views, suitable for exhibition and advertising purposes. It was available through the Standard Loan Company. The movie situation was different in the bigger cities. More than in the rest of the country, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia thrived on novelty, and the movies had lost much of their novelty. By 1900, the movies had become more of a newsreel service. In fact, a nameless French film company, 
which was probably either Gamont or Pathé, launched a newsreel service at this time, a service that included hiring and training a number of reporter photographers. Along with news clips from the company British Mutoscope and Biograph, much of America's cinematic diet came from imported newsreels at this time. In New York City, Keith's vaudeville houses showed news event films, such as the Boer War and the Paris Exposition. And while the Eden Musée did start the year with Miliez's Cinderella, much of its advertised cinema that year came from news events on the Boer War. An all-important musical bobble that was launched just before the Christmas season at the end of 1900 was the American production of the smash British musical Floridora. It would popularize some trends, including some quite questionable ones. It would be fair to say that the musical and its popular song, Tell Me Pretty Maiden, were major successes. But the parade of pretty girls in retro-Victorian dresses, trimmed in lace and ruffles, twirling parasols, and conversing quite delicately with their stage bows, drove the wealthy, self-indulgent sex hounds of New York absolutely crazy. Theater long had a tradition of these men shamelessly chasing after the babes of Broadway, and some of these wealthy gentlemen were already married. But Floridora brought them out in such numbers that the musical became famous for the number of young girls being tempted off the stage by the baying of these wealthy hounds. All of this would eventually spill out into the public when Evelyn Nesbitt and the Thaw-White murder case would give us the first of a series of the trials of the century. Looking over the list of plays and stars that were appearing on stage in early 1900, you could see many people and stories that would eventually be gobbled up by the movie industry. The most obvious was the play Way Out East. The story of a young woman lured and taken advantage of by a young cad and then left pregnant was classic 19th century melodrama whose moral warned women of the dangers of the predatory male. By 1899, it was one of the last important melodramatic plays, and D.W. Griffith would turn it into one of his last important films in 1920. The movie would provide one of the silent film era's greatest action sequences, as a sick, confused, and lost Lillian Gish wanders helplessly on the ice flows of the river while Richard Barthelmus attempts to rescue her. Another future movie with heavy theatrical fingerprints on it was The Little Minister. It was written by James M. Barry, the man who wrote Peter Pan, and like the play about the boy who never grew up, The Little Minister would also star thespian ingenue Maud Adams. The American actress had a real bond with the Scottish playwright, and he claimed that only she understood his characters. By the 1920s, Barry agreed that Paramount could film his major works, including Peter Pan. Those works had never appeared on the screen before that time, that is, except The Little Minister, which had deeper roots in early cinema. The two-reel version had made a star out of Clara Kimball Young in 1913. Then there was Sherlock Holmes. Its author, Arthur Conan Doyle, hadn't been interested in capitalizing on his detective character, 
He grew sick of writing about the eccentric Holmes in the 1890s and preferred to let the detective die. But building a large home for his wife changed all that. When William Gillette offered to buy the theatrical rights to the character as well as write a play based on Holmes, Doyle approved of both. The rights helped build the house, but so did residuals from the play that Gillette toured relentlessly. Even more surprising was the continued sales of home stories due to the success of the play. Eventually, Doyle was convinced to bring Holmes back to life and wrote two more series of his famous detective. In a final Holmesian twist, Gillette filmed a Sherlock Holmes movie in 1915, but like many silent films from that era, it disappeared. That is, until it was discovered several years ago in a French film vault. And in 1900, there were still a lot more plays that would eventually end up in the screen sometime in the 1910s or 20s. There was the recurring success of Ben-Hur, which Selig would make into a short film in 1907, only to be sued by the play's producers for failing to secure the rights to the story. Then there's Olga Nethersall's Sappho, which would be turned into a film in 1913, and a number of times after that. And Sardou's Cleopatra also became a movie in 1913. Mr. Snell would be a mid-1910s movie for Mary Pickford, and Janice Meredith would be a mid-1920s movie for Marion Davies. The Girl from Maxims would be the first attempt to make a silent film musical. Mrs. Leslie Carter appeared in Zaza and would only make one film, and it wasn't Zaza. But that play would be made into a movie a number of times. James O'Neill, the father of Eugene O'Neill, was appearing in The Count of Monte Cristo, a play that he owned the rights to. He built his fortune upon the play, much as Gillette did with Sherlock Holmes. O'Neill's film version of The Count of Monte Cristo would appear in 1913. The Western play Arizona appeared on stage in September of 1900. It would become another 1913 film this time made by the long-lost film company, All-Star. Then there was Quo Vadis and Pride of Jenico, both early silent feature films. I've mentioned all these plays and movies to give you an early understanding of how much the early feature films drew from Broadway productions of this era, especially when the feature films were only a decade into the future. Afterwards, the studios would depend a little more often upon their writers to create stories, but early on, they used a lot of Broadway plays, and many of them were older than we think. The movie industry was in a flux at the very beginning of the 1900s. All three countries, America, England, and France, faced major events right at the end of the 1800s, which proved to be quite convenient as the movies were becoming newsreels and were gaining in importance. Watching movement had grown old, but once America went to war against Spain, Britain went to war against South Africa, and France was torn apart over the anti-Semitic handling of the Dreyfus case, the movies became important. All these issues gave the movie industry the opportunity to expand its purpose. 
In the long run, it would be the industry's flexibility that kept it from collapsing time and again. But while the movie industry was becoming a newsreel service, the French and the British would soon start experimenting with storytelling. This would require new ways of handling the recorded images, as lighting, editing, pacing, and even title writing would soon become a part of the process. This would happen over the next half decade, and it would also require the people making the moving pictures to stop working as independent cameramen and start working in teams, as they sought out family members, friends, co-workers, and even actors and vaudevillians to work with them in making story pictures. So I'll close my historical review by looking at where the people involved in the stories of the early movies had found themselves at around 1900. I suppose the place to start would be with the truly famous, and that would be Thomas Edison. At the beginning of the 1900s, Edison was in his early 50s. His most dazzling inventions were already behind him, but in his eyes, those machines, such as phonographs and moving projectors, were quite profitable, but were also a nuisance. At this time, he was still more interested in his work with the mining process, as well as the growing interest in storage batteries. A German scientist would visit him in this first year of the 1900s in order to show the great inventor a process for producing fire and heat at a rapid pace using aluminum powder. This was not something that Edison was interested in, but by the end of the year, Edison had finally found ways to use coal more efficiently. By this time, the bigger stories were personal, such as the rumor that Edison had contracted a deadly type of influenza, which was not true. Also, his son, Thomas Jr., now an adult, had taken up with a dancer from the casino nightclub in New York City. She took him for as much money as she could get and left him high and dry in upstate New York, leaving him to walk back home. As for the moving pictures, Edison, or more appropriately his lawyers, filed a suit against one of the owners of Sears and Roebuck for marketing a projector that violated Edison's patent. They also filed one against Farmer Dunn Moving Picture Machine Company. Farmer Dunn was actually New York City's weather prognosticator at the time. It's hard to understand why he was peddling moving picture machines unless it was simply a side investment. The Edison Company, nominally run by Thomas Edison, would continue to muscle into the movie industry at the beginning of the 20th century, at least until the government brought the hammer down on their film trust over a decade later. The government's ruling would become public around the time that the feature film era began. Obviously, the government's ruling against the moving picture trust would have a major effect on the industry itself. After that, the Edison Company would limp along for several years before shutting down. So where was William Kennedy Laurie Dixon at this time? He was living in London, England with his family. While his name was not officially connected with the gentleman that formed the British Mutoscope and Biograph Company, he was part of its American firm and helped with the filming of news events at the time. 
Dixon helped film Pope Leo XIII and traveled to film the Boer War after it broke out. In fact, he traveled extensively, including many trips to the United States, but he would now consider England his home. As for Auguste and Louis Lumiere, the brothers still ran their manufacturing company, which was now making camera film more than it was making glass plates. Still, their film was not considered as good as Kodak. On the other hand, the brothers continued to be more interested in the technical side of photography than was Kodak as they pursued cutting-edge ideas such as color film and larger-size projection systems. In 1900, they were celebrated by the organizers of the latest Paris World's Fair. And then there's Robert Paul. Like the rest of the men already mentioned, Paul was much more interested in machines than in making film or making movies. He wasn't averse to understanding the need to provide customers with movies in order to keep their exhibition businesses successful. Still, it was an aspect of the business he was willing to hand off to someone else. Paul led a small group of cameramen to South Africa to film the Boer War, and after the war, he would continue to act as the producer and distributor of their product, but he would no longer act as a creative cameraman. As for Thomas Armat, he greatly benefited from selling his motion picture machine patent to Edison, but he was still primarily a real estate man selling properties in suburban Washington, D.C., Several years into the new century, he would purchase land in one of D.C.'s wealthy neighborhoods and have the old stone barn on the property dismantled. Using the building's old stones, he created his colonial-style manor house, complete with a French mansard roof and columned portico. Selling properties and designing machines made him rich. Several months before he died in the 1940s, he was given an honorary Oscar for being one of the very first pioneers in the development of movie projectors. As for his partner, Charles Francis Jenkins, he was nothing if not versatile. By the late 1890s, he had built himself a steam-powered car. Considered the first automobile with its power process in the front, Jenkins incorporated in order to build his machines. Unfortunately, he couldn't raise enough money and he eventually sold them through magazines. He would continue to create interesting ideas and patent them, but it was his work with television that now makes him important. As for the last pioneers of the 1800s, people like Georges Méliès and Alice Guy, more of their story will appear within the next handful of episodes. I have already mentioned that Annabelle Moore, now a grown-up young lady, was moving away from the fad of skirt dancing with the approach of the new century and became a dancer in theatrical productions. Loie Fuller would remain the inspiration of the modern dance movement, and as she grew older, her dance students launched into their own careers, especially Isadora Duncan. Although she occasionally visited America, she had little connection with her home country, as she became one of the major artistic darlings of the old world. There was also people we haven't even really discussed yet. For example, there was a young William Fox. 
His parents were immigrants from Hungary, and his happy-go-lucky, shiftless father left it to his barely adolescent son to make money for the family whenever he found himself unemployed. William left school at an early age and spent his time making money selling a variety of things. Like a lot of European Jews, he ended up in the garment business in 1900 at the age of 21. He had managed to save enough money to help start up a cloth company that packaged cloth in usable bulk sizes, which anyone who sews now refers to as bolts. In 1904, he would sell his company and invest in a Brooklyn theater that showed movie shorts. In the Chicago world of moving pictures, 1900 was the year that William Selig started selling his polyscope machine. Machinist Edward Amet chose this moment to bow out of the moving picture movement. His partner, George Spoor, was already touring the Midwest as a traveling exhibitor. Then there are the people of the future. Carl Lamley, who would lead the independent uprising and would later run Universal Pictures, was living in Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the time. Lamley had left Germany in the early 1880s and moved to America, and around 1905 he would set up a theater and then a film exchange in Chicago. But at this time he had established himself in a local dry goods business in east-central Wisconsin and had married the owner's daughter. On the other hand, Adolf Zucker, the man who would run Paramount Pictures, was already in Chicago. He was neck deep into the fur business after an impoverished childhood in Hungary. Trained in the business in New York, by 1900 he was making remarkable money designing furs, while his partner, Morris Kahn, was selling them through northern Illinois. Both Zucker and Kahn would soon move to New York City, and once the Nickelodeon market started up, Zucker would not be able to resist the lure of investing in the entertainment business. Chicago was also the home to George Klein. Klein's father was an optician who ran a small optical store in New York City, where his son was born. George also became an optician, and soon after he graduated, he expanded the family business to Chicago. Unlike his father, George relied on advertising to get the word out, and by the beginning of the 1890s, the Chicago branch of the Klein Optical Company was selling optical instruments of various types, including telescopes and cameras, and by the end of the century, he would include moving picture machines. By 1904, he would start renting films to his moving picture machine customers. In the 1910s, he would usher in the feature film era by introducing Italian blockbusters to America. Across Lake Michigan, little Clarice Kimball was attending school in St. Joseph, Michigan, and living with a relative as her parents continued to tour as actors in the Holden Stock Company. Clarice was 10 years old at the time. Within a few years, she would also find herself in Chicago, attending St. Francis Xavier School before joining her parents in Stock Theater. By the 1910s, her parents would start working for Vitagraph, and she would soon become one of the company's stars after marrying fellow actor James Young. By the middle of the decade, 
Clara Kimball Young would be the second most popular actor in the country, behind Mary Pickford. Mary's situation was more difficult than Ms. Kimball's. Her name was Gladys Smith. She turned eight that year, and her family lived in Toronto, Ontario. Her father had worked either as a stevedore or possibly as a purser on one of the ships that traveled along the St. Lawrence River. Two years earlier, he had had an accident while working on one of the ships and later died from the injuries. Her mother, Charlotte, held the family together in the traditional way of taking in boarders, doing other people's laundry, and preparing meals for other families. Gladys, as the oldest of three children, was still too little to look after her siblings, but the children soon found a way to bring in occasional money by appearing in plays when children's roles were available. Things were dire enough that the family doctor, also surnamed Smith, offered to adopt Gladys. At first she was pleased, but when she realized her family couldn't come with her, the shock led her to doubling her efforts to help her family. With the new century, Gladys, her mother, and her siblings would expand their efforts to survive together by entering the American theatrical market. Actress Florence Lawrence was living outside of Toronto in the neighboring town of Hamilton. She was actually Florence Bridgewood, and as a preschool child, she appeared on the stage with her mother and was known as Baby Flo. When her father died of coal gas poisoning in 1898, she and her mother moved to Buffalo, New York, to live with her mother's parents. Florence was taken out of theater and placed in a school, while her mother continued in theater. When Flo finished her education, she returned to the stage with her mother before setting out on her own. The early stories of many of these young actors are quite often one of hardship. Another Canadian living in America at the time was Michael Sinnott, who would later be known as Max Sennett. Sennett would be the man who started the fabled Keystone Studio. He had been born in the province of Quebec in 1880, and by 1900, he and his family drifted southward, probably due to employment. His father worked as a carpenter, and it seems that they may have even owned their own home as they took on a boarder who worked as a bricklayer. Michael was working at a paper mill, but job safety probably seemed non-existent, and even a little dangerous to Michael because he soon started dabbling in theater. Mabel Norman was also of French-Canadian descent, although her family was already living in the States on Staten Island. She was about Mary Pickford's age and was living with her family and attending local school. Unfortunately, tuberculosis already haunted the family, and a few of her five siblings were already dying of the disease. Within a decade, she would become a popular artist model before trailblazing a career in comedy. The Myers also lived in Canada. They had immigrated from Russia in the 1880s, first living on Long Island, before moving to St. John in Nova Scotia. Jacob Meyer was a metal scrap collector, and he was very hard on his oldest son, Louis Meyer. Louis 
who learned to be a thoroughly inflexible and ruthless negotiator of scrap, later applied those skills when he ran Metro's Pictures, and later MGM. In 1900, he was still in Canada. So it wouldn't be until 1903 that he moved to Massachusetts and soon discovered the easy wealth of the early movies. Cincinnati, Ohio was a home to two important actors in the 1910s, Theda Berra and Marguerite Clark. Miss Berra was actually Theodosia Goodman and lived in Avondale, then a Jewish suburb of the Queen City. Avondale was annexed to Cincinnati at a time when Theo was still attending school. By 1900, she was attending Walnut Hills High School. The very diminutive Miss Clark also grew up in Avondale. She attended public school, but both her parents died about five years apart. Her older sister, Cora, took charge of her life and sent her to a Catholic prep school. There she discovered theater. Marguerite graduated in 1900, and rather than attend college, she and Cora took off for Broadway. Cora would work as Marguerite's agent. And in September of 1900, Marguerite was already appearing in the Belle of Bohemia at the Casino Nightclub's Theater. Just a little ways across the Ohio from Cincinnati, in Oldham County, Kentucky, David Wart Griffith was raised. Oldham was just a county away from Louisville, and that was where Griffith first cut his theatrical teeth. Griffith was 25 years old in 1900 and had just pulled the plug on his Louisville-based acting career. Late in 1899, he had traveled to New York City in the hope of becoming a working actor. His biographer, film critic Richard Schickel, would refer to most of 1900 as Griffith's lost year, but suggested that he could have possibly taken up with an acting troupe that toured at this time. Griffith would stumble through a good part of this coming decade, attempting to make a success of thespianism, only to continue stumbling right into the doors of Biograph Studio. There he would make both the studio and himself into the future of the movies, as it led into the feature film era. At this time, the Talmadge sisters were barely in their teens and living in Brooklyn. On the other hand, Ala Nazimova, one of the major stars of the late 1910s, was working in Konstantin Stanilovsky's theater troupe in Moscow at this time. She was born in the late 1870s in Yalta, but once her parents divorced, she too took off for a career in acting. By 1905, she would be appearing on Broadway. Douglas Fairbanks was already professionally acting at this time. Born in Denver in 1885, he had been expelled from school, and rather than make amends, he took off with the Frederick Ward acting troupe. He would soon be acting as manager for the troupe. In between plays, he held a number of clerical jobs. Finally, there's Charlie Chaplin, who was three years older than Mary Pickford and about four years younger than his best friend, Douglas Fairbanks. The story of his intense poverty living in London is pretty well known, but it was just before the change in centuries when his mother was institutionalized due to malnutrition and syphilis. 
By 1900, he and his brother, Sid, were living with their alcoholic father in a situation so dire that child protection services had to be called. The first years of the 20th century saw Charlie and Sid caring for their mother and periodically reinstitutionalizing her while appearing in local theater and vaudeville. Charlie was a struggling, almost starving London child actor at the time. Fairbanks was a renegade actor. Nazimova was a rising star on the Moscow stage. Max Sennett was working in a paper mill. Mary Pickford had already stopped going to school to help support her family, while Mabel Norman was still a grade school student. Louis B. Mayer was collecting metal scraps for his father. Adolf Zucker was wealthy from his fur business. Clara Kimball Young was in a private Catholic school, while Marguerite Clark was just graduating from one. The future vamp, Theda Berra, was also in high school when she was bitten by the acting bug. William Fox was successfully climbing the garment district ladder. D.W. Griffith was a struggling melodramatic actor. All of these people and others would help raise the movies up from its status as a novelty and a news service and turn it into the world's most important storytelling media. Next time, I'll take a look at how the movies were already spreading around the world. Although my main focus will be on the American movie scene, there is more to this than just American movies at this stage. So while it may be too early to call it world cinema, it's still a good time to take a look at what is going on with the movies worldwide. Hope you come back, and thanks for listening. 